Well, greetings in the Master's name. Uh, this morning, before the service is over, I'd like to share a few more thoughts from Hebrews chapter 4, but uh, I'd like to digress a bit this morning. The um, These lessons um, are rather pertinent, church and state relations and so on. And I'd like to share um, a bit in uh, how, to, how we think about the war in Europe and Ukraine. Uh, at VMRC, once a month, they have a um, something called Elder Exchange. It was started before COVID, and then it discontinued for a couple years, and now it's gone again. This Elder Exchange thing, this is the way they uh, explain it. <clears throat> it says, VMRC hosts different events and gatherings important, helping us live well in all aspects of our lives. Since for Christians... Our love for God and neighbor involves our minds and we experience the Spirit's power through every new mind. We are initiating an academic venue where ideas are presented on a scholastic level, followed by group discussions to discern their resonance with vibrant Christian faith. Uh, and so description of formal, thoughtful presentation by a resource speaker or panel of persons on a topic of interest linked to faith theology. And the one this uh, for uh, May was a focus on Ukraine, and they had six people on a panel, it, and it really didn't quite turn out the way they were expecting it to, I think. These six people were people who in various ways had um, served in alternate service or experiences like that instead of participation in war. And so they shared their experiences and so on. And then there's, at the end of these sessions, there's a question and answer period. And one lady asked a question I thought was a very good question. You know, thinking about our, our um, who we are as Christians and how we're to look at war and participants in war and so on, and our feelings, I mean, that's who we are, but then when we look at this situation in Europe, and, you know, we kind of have these feelings of, well, she didn't say it this way, but, you know, it's kind of like we hope those Ukrainians teach those Russians a lesson and beat a tar out of them. And, you know, the Soviet Union, micro, and maybe, of course, the Soviet Union kind of collapsed in the 90s, but, you know, my growing up days, that was the enemy. The national enemy. That's the national psych mentality mindset. That's the enemy. So how do we process all that? How do we think about that? And so it got me thinking about something my sister wrote some years ago. How many of you have ever heard of Gladys Alward? Okay, several of you. How many of you read the book The Small Woman by Alan Burgess? Maybe just one or two. And I read that book. And that, that, that book's about her, the small woman. Um, and so here, and so I, um, I'm going to read something here that my sister wrote 
she would like to write a bunch of these things, kind of like Paul Harvey's The Rest of the Story. I don't know if she'll ever get around to it, but okay. They called her the small woman, but it certainly said nothing about the magnitude of her courage as she ministered to her beloved Chinese. You may have heard of her, Gladys Alward, how she single-handedly took 100 Chinese children over mountains and rivers to safety. Born in 1902 in Edmonton, a suburb of London, she had a growing conviction as a young adult that she was to go as a missionary to China. How to get there, she scarcely knew. The China Inland Mission found her unpromising. After three months in their tutelage, she rated poor in theology, but that was not the main drawback. It was age. If they continued to train her for three more years, she would be nearly 30 until she reached China, over the hill, for learning the difficult Chinese. Gladys may have been discouraged, but not daunted. She began to save week by week for her fare to China. The cheapest way was an impossible route, overland by railroad through Europe, Asia, and Siberia, right through the raging war between Russia and China. We do not, the booking clerk told her, like to deliver our customers dead. No matter, Gladys was determined, and she was needed. An old missionary of 73, after a brief stay in England, had returned to China to die. She, Mrs. Lawson, was looking for someone to carry on her work. And so Gladys left, 28 years old, two suitcases in hand, one bearing clothes and the other food, a kettle and saucepan attached to the handle. Well over a month later, after a harrowing journey, she arrived at her destination in northern China. Unpampered by Mrs. Lawson, Gladys learned fast. Learned that you can't go to pieces over what you can't immediately change. Those awful beheadings in the marketplace, the justice of heathendom, the mud peltings from worry Chinese. Soon she adopted the native dress and with her diminutive stature and black hair, blended well with the Chinese people. By the time Jenny Lawson died, Gladys had begun to learn the Chinese language and the Chinese mind. Strangely enough, it was the Chinese government which honored her with prestige that enabled her to share the gospel from village to village. She was appointed official foot inspector for her district. The unbinding of the female foot had begun. When two soldiers, with two soldier escorts, she traveled mile after mile to village after village with open reception. Later, it was a prisoner who gave her the name Awade, which was to stick with her all her days in China. Called to quell a bloody prison riot by virtue of being a Christian, her God was supposed to protect from harm, she walked into a courtyard of raging criminals, some were already dead, and stopped the riot, promising help for the prisoners. It was then that the prisoners thanked her, calling her Awade. She found out later it meant the virtuous one. The young woman the China Inland Mission had judged not suitable was on her way to becoming one of the most noted Chinese missionaries of the 20th century. Perhaps, though, they had judged her somewhat rightly in theology. Though Gladys had a great heart of love for the Chinese and their salvation and an indomitable faith in God, it was her own desire to help the Chinese people which betrayed her, betrayed her on a point of theology on which she was somewhat weak, non-resistance, the separation of church and state. And quite a bit of the information that my sister got out about um, the next part of the reading was from this book, The Last Empire, about um, Madame Cheyenne Kashek. Um, and I 
wouldn't necessarily suggest you read that book, but it had a lot of information in it. For the Japanese had come, come with their planes over the box-like walls which had protected the Chinese towns for centuries to bomb the Chinese like mice trapped in their boxes. They came also on foot to occupy hills and villages. Gladys was asked by the Chinese to spy for the Generalissimo, the Nationalist Army. In her mission work, she often went into occupied territory. Could she not gather information which would help the Nationalist Army? Was not God against evil? As a naturalized Chinese, she cared deeply what happened to her people. It was known that the Japanese considered themselves a master race, the Chinese's underlings. Japanese policy in the North, already in their grasp, was similar to Hitler's on the other side of the world. Would not the defeat of the Japanese hasten the formation of a new China built upon Christianity? The Generalissimo, Cheyenne Kashek, and his wife were professing Christians. Should not Gladys, as a Christian, work on the side of good? Likely, Gladys knew little of Cheyenne's rise into power or the story of Charlie Soong, his father-in-law. Charlie, this talking about Madame Kashak, Kashak's uh, father, Charlie, whose history indicates to have been the son of a merchant smuggler boat builder, managed to find his way to the United States as a young teenager. It did not take long for the young Chinaman to make a profession of Christianity in the Methodist church. It took perhaps less time for the Methodist to make him their protege inspired greatly by the idea of sending a saved and educated heathen back to his own country. Charlie, with his ready charm and quick mind, learned fast. Whether his spiritual growth kept pace with his head knowledge has yet to be ascertained. Regardless, his factual Bible knowledge and phraseology became advanced enough for the Methodists to send him back to his homeland, under their control, and provided with a stipend which seemed somewhat meager to this westernized Chinese. After being back in China around two years, he joined a secret society and started his life as a revolutionary. Four years or so later, he broke with the Methodists, though still proclaiming his desire to preach Christ. Perhaps his close friend, later son-in-law, Sun Yat-sen, summed up Charlie Soong's own philosophy when he said, I did not belong to the Christianity of the churches, but to the Christianity of Jesus, who was a revolutionary. Charlie became rich as he printed and sold Western books and Bibles. With his money, he financed Republican revolutionaries. With his charisma and connections in the U.S., he influenced Chinese policy in America. One of his daughters, Chen Ling, would marry Sun Yat-sen and later idealistically champion the communist cause. Another, Ah Ling, would marry H.H. H. Kung, who would become the principal banker of nationalist China. The third, Mei Ling, would marry Cheyenne Kai-shek the future Generalissimo. Though Cheyenne had two previous wives, this marriage with the attractive and intelligent Mei Ling was an important political move to connect himself with the rising power of the Sungs. No, surely Gladys did not know many things about the Generalissimo. His father-in-law, Charlie Sung, had passed on before she arrived in China. How could she know that many of the Generalissimo's funds came from the underworld from extortion of rich merchants in exchange for protection. That his protector, a chief of the underworld and chief dope dealer in China, was to the public eye known as chief of opium suppression. 
that one advisor spoke of Shying's characteristics, most prominent of these being his lust for glory, that his profession of Christianity was made in order to gain the hand of the illustrious Mei Ling, that the death toll of Shying's white terror in Shanghai alone is perhaps 15,000 or more, that of those left in Shanghai, 6,000 women and adolescent girls were sold into the factories and brothels of China, that much of his war effort focused on internal strife rather than rallying the people against the Japanese. And that's who she chose to spy for, for good against evil, see? Yes, there was much that Gladys did not know, but one thing she knew, she wanted to be on the side of right against evil. Gladys wrestled with her conscience and chose what she hoped was good to aid the nationalist. Herein lay the choice of a soul. How should a Christian fight evil? To support one kind of evil, to rid one's country of another kind, is a terrible compromise for the Christian, even if done unknowingly. What is a Christian to do? Perhaps Henry had the answer. Henry was a native Chinese less than two years younger than Gladys. Born into a Christian family, he gave himself unreservedly to Christ at the age of 17. He studied the scripture fervently and in time became a well-known Christian leader in eastern China. During the war with the Japanese, he found refuge in Hong Kong and decided to visit England. If anyone had a right to be more zealous for the Chinese than Gladys, would it not have been Henry? a true native Christian. But Henry's first allegiance was to a higher country whose citizens were his brothers in Christ. His studies of the scripture had served his Lord well. At a conference in England, he was seated next to another guest speaker from Japan. Henry was invited to pray. Who could forget his prayer? The Lord reigns. We affirm it boldly. Our Lord Jesus Christ is reigning, and he is Lord of all. Nothing can touch his authority. It is spiritual forces that are out to destroy his interests in China and Japan. Therefore, we do not pray for China. We do not pray for Japan. But we pray for the interest of thy son in China and Japan. We do not blame any man, for they are only tools in the hand of thine enemies. We stand for thy will. Shatter, O Lord, the kingdom of darkness, for the persecutions of the church are wounding thee. Amen. Afterwards, Henry took communion with his Japanese brother. A banner above them read, All one in Christ Jesus. Later, back in China, Henry's teaching echoed the same thoughts. We must know, therefore, how to pray. We may remind God of what attitude Japan takes to him, but we must also remind him that in China, Christians and missionaries have too much intimacy with the corrupt state. The church must stand above national questions and say, we here ask for neither a Chinese nor a Japanese victory, but for whatever is an advantage to the one thing praises to you, O Lord, the testimony of your son. Gladys Howard suffered much to bring light to the Chinese people and finally went home to England. The Generalissimo retreated to Taiwan in 1949 and ruled relatively wisely, remaining its president until his death in 1975. Even though his Christianity lacked the marks of the genuine, he appeared to have learned from some of his mistakes, saying, 
we must not tolerate any longer the selfish behavior and ideas which have caused the collapse of the mainland and may cause the collapse of Taiwan if unchecked. Henry died in China in 1972 after 20 years in a communist prison, but perhaps in the end, his had been the most fruitful years of all. You may have heard of him or even read his books. Timeless Theology, they called this preacher writer Watchman Nee. And that is a book I recommend you read, The Story of Watchman Nee. That was Henry that prayed that way in England. And I think that gives us some perspective on how we should think about the war in Europe. Uh, now, going to Hebrews chapter 4. Perhaps I'll just read the last part of the chapter. <clears throat> Starting in verse 11. Hebrews 4, verse 11. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. For the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is of a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. Seeing then that we have a great high priest that is passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our profession. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly into the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Okay, verse 11 says, labor, says, let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. In the last message, we spoke extensively about, about rest, and we looked at songs that speak of rest, songs that speak of our desire, our longing, our testimony of having that rest. And even in singing songs like that, uh, these thoughts set to music, it, it contributes rest to our souls. Rest. Now, the first verse of the chapter says, Let us therefore fear, lest a promise being left us of entering to his rest, any of you should come short of it. And so, we talked a little bit about that too, about fear. And see, it says in Timothy, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of love and power of a sound mind. It says here, let us fear, lest the promise being left us. And it says, let us therefore fear. Therefore, because chapter 3 talks about those who had the promise and missed it. So, there is a place for the right kind of fear. The um, the Youth Adult Teacher Quarterly for June August 2015 on the book of Hebrews uh, said this, uh, and it was in reference, I think, to this this idea of fear. Man tries to avoid feelings of guilt 
by watering down his view of God. If God is some fluffy character surrounded by rainbows, there is nothing to fear. If, however, he is a holy king of justice, all men should tremble. And in reference to Jeremiah 10.10, But the Lord is the true God. He is the living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath the earth shall tremble, and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. God is the sovereign creator controller. And as an absolute sovereign, he requires absolute submission and adherence. Although it's not a, uh, he's not a tyrant. All that he has prescribed for us is for our well-being. But Hebrew, again, uh, verse 11, Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Uh, let us labor, or the idea there is let us give diligence to enter into that rest. Some, somebody wrote it like this. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, were the only two who ever got through to the land of milk and honey. To enter into that rest. Rest from the turmoil of sin, that's release from the guilt of sin. Rest from the weariness of defeat, that's rest from the power of sin. Rest from the draining effects of temptation and testing, and that's rest from the presence of sin, and we haven't experienced that totally yet, although we can in part. Uh, the draining effects of temptation and testing can wear us down. And we need to find rest in Christ from that. And it says, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. Now, 1 Corinthians 10 says all these things were written for our example. And it's talking about the experience in the wilderness in 1 Corinthians 10. It refers to the wilderness experience and talks about their lust. Their desires. You know, they said, who shall give us flesh to eat? In Egypt, they had fish, cucumbers, melon, leeks, onions, garlic. And they said, all we have is this old manna. Wishing and wishing and wishing for what God has not given Lust is a desire that wants something, wants it now, and not subordinate to God's will. They were wanting melons and onions. God had given them manna. Would you rather have manna or melons and onions? Well, I guess we don't know. But I think that manna was probably pretty good. But anyway, they wanted melons and onions. God had given them manna. Who of us do not find ourselves wishing sometimes for what God has not given Perhaps a position God has not given, or possessions he has not given, or success. Wishing, wishing. For a husband God has not given, or children God has not given, or a job he has not given. This wishing always makes us lose our taste for Jesus, our heavenly manna.
It's not wrong to ask, but it's wrong to not be content. There might come a time when God provides, or he might say, stop asking. We cannot truly say he is satisfying us when we have this lusting for something else in our hearts. Uh, the end of that account in the Old Testament, and I'm not sure it's there in the, uh, in the history, but in the Psalms, it says that God gave, them God gave them their request, but sent leanness to their souls. That's sobering. Now, thinking about the next couple of verses, the word of God. Well, and the reason it, it says that because it's tied back to the first verse or the second verse where it says, it says, for unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them that heard it. And so now here in verses 12 and 13, it's talking about the word. The word of God is quick or alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. Neither is there any creature that is not manifest in his sight, but all things are naked and opened unto the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There was, um, see if I brought it along, there were some, yes, uh, some thoughts from, um, I got these from um, a, a book by William Evans. Uh, I'm familiar with older reference material. The Book of Books by William Evans is a very good book on the Bible. It tells about the Bible and it tells how to study it. He, all wrote, he also wrote some other books on uh, book method of Bible study, how to prepare sermons. I bought that book just recently. I never had it because I was asked to serve this fall in the Conjoint Minister Study Week on sermon preparation. I told them that, well, I'm getting older and got some health issues, but we'll, we'll try. Uh, so I want to read that book in preparation for that. But anyway, this one has come from one of William Evans' books. Having shown that the exhortation to faith in the promise of God is based on the scriptures, the writer now proceeds to show the place and power of the word of God, which will reveal to us any hidden sin that may be in our hearts and endanger our enjoyment of God's promised rest. Verse 12 shows that just as a sword cuts through the joints and marrow of the body, so the word of God penetrates into the innermost recesses of our spiritual being. Nowhere in the Bible are men represented, and this was especially stood out to me as I uh, went through my formal studies and so on and the way people handled or didn't, the way they approached the word of God. Nowhere in the Bible are men represented as being critics of the word of God but always and everywhere is the word of God set forth as a critic of the actions, ponderings, meditations, thinking, conceptions, and determinations of men. The thought of the all-penetrating power of the word of God leads naturally to the thought of God's omniscience. He knows all about us. Just as the severed victim on the altar lies fully exposed to the view of the priest, 
so do our lives lie open to him with whom is our reckoning. What folly then to seek to hide from him some hidden or secret sin. And uh, one more quote here. This is from Halley's Bible Handbook, and this would be from decades ago because Halley's Bible Handbook started out. I don't know when I was going to look at the um, copyright first copyright date and forgot, but it was way, way back in the 1900s. But this is what Halley said. Halley's Bible Handbook, by the way, is a good, concise reference on the Word of God. God's Word, living and active, has power to penetrate the inmost depths of the human heart, to separate and view every motive and desire and purpose and will, and evaluate them at their intrinsic value when we ourselves scarcely know our own motives. Israelites of the wilderness missed the promised land through disregard of God's Word. Our best hope of reaching our promised land is in obedience to God's Word. If only our churches could realize what power they would gain by giving God's Word its proper place in the services. But alas, alas, everything else but God's Word. Well, that was many years ago he wrote that. So when we read the Word, and it talks here how the Word searches us and analyzes us, and nothing is hidden from God. And when we read the Word... Um, As a younger person, I one time worked through a devotional diary, and it was actually, um, it was just sort of a sample to get you started. It was like three months worth, and you'd read about, they had it broken up into like, you'd only read about eight or ten verses at a time, but you were supposed to read it carefully and think. And uh, I was trying to remember the, the things that told you you could look for. There were about six things, like as you read this passage, look for things. And uh, so you're actively engaged with the reading. Uh, it's a little different when you're trying to read through the Bible in a year, but uh, I couldn't remember what they were, and I looked, I looked up to see what I could find, and one, one place said uh, it, it gave the, uh, the acronym of SPEC. Uh, look for a sin to avoid or confess. Look for a promise to claim. Look for an example to follow or not follow. Look for a command to obey. Look for knowledge of God to acquire. That's similar to the ones that were in that old devotional diary I had, uh, another place that looked for a truth to believe. And so, um, actually, uh, I was, uh, then that reminded me of something else I had done once upon a time, uh, used sort of a guide in reading through the Bible in a year, it was called the Daily Walk, and so I was just looking through that. Uh, well, one thing I remembered was, one of the few things I remembered from that many years ago was, it had these little sayings in the margin, and one of them was, uh, if your study of God's word does not change the way you live, either you're already perfect or not studying correctly. And, um, but then I was looking through here to see, uh, it wasn't in this one. But, okay, so I thought this was pertinent. Um, as, far as, as far as what it says in these verses 12 and 13, and this was actually on, for, the reading was 1 Timothy 4 to 6 with a focus on 1 Timothy 5. The little saying in the margin was, when, when problems get Christians praying, those problems do more good than harm. But this was the uh, sort of the, uh, it has a paragraph, your daily walk. It said, read the following quotation slowly and thoughtfully twice. One of the values of scripture is that it has an answer to every human problem of whatever kind, era, dimension, or significance. Do you agree? It is true that not all the church problems of the first century are identical to the problems of the church in the 20th century. 
But even though the problems change, God's principles stand sure. Timeless statements of biblical truth that are just as applicable today as they were in Timothy's day nearly 2,000 years ago. Prove that to yourself. What biblical insight have you gained from today's reading about? Okay, so here was three chapters in that reading. And it said, what biblical insight have you gained from this reading about? The church's obligation to needy members? How to call a pastor? How to respond as a Christian employee? The proper conduct of women? The attitude you should have toward money? Those three chapters, short chapters, answer Give that direction to those five questions. And so he says, prove to yourself that the Bible has insight to today's questions and problems. Uh, another little... Could you read those five things again, please? Uh, sure. And this was uh, simply taken from 1 Timothy 4-6. to And those three chapters answer those five issues. The church's obligation to need... Okay. What biblical insight have you gained from today's reading about the church's obligation to needy members, how to call a pastor, how to respond as a Christian employee, the proper conduct of women, the attitude you should have toward money? Three chapters, one day's reading, speak to those five issues. The Bible is powerful and directive. Well, a couple of the other sayings here I just wanted to mention. More can be learned from life's trials than from his triumphs. And then right along with that, there was another one. The brook would lose its song if the rocks were removed. And then this one I thought was pretty close home. If I can find it. Fellowship. And this is from the reading. This is from the day's reading on 1 John, where, you know, it says in 1 John that, that uh, we're, we, we, we share what we know about Christ, that ye also may have fellowship with us, and truly our fellowship is with the Father and with the Son, Jesus Christ. And the little saying in the margin was, fellowship is not tea, biscuits, and sophisticated small talk after the sermon. It is an unconditional sharing of your life with the other members of Christ's body. <laughs> what do you think of that? Well, anyway. G.C. Morgan said, If it be true that complexes are at the root of all restlessness, Christ disentangles them and brings them into proper relationship. When Jesus, the Son of God, the living and eternal Word, deals with a man, he invades the whole region of his personality separates, divides, disentangles, loosens up, brings into true interrelationship, and so produces rest. It's interesting. It was interesting to me. The chapter starts out with, let us therefore fear. And it ends up in verse 16 with, let us therefore come boldly. And there's no contradiction. We probably know the verse the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. There's actually three, a triplet of verses that say the same thing. Psalm 111, verse 10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. A good understanding have all they that do his commandments. Job 28, 28, 
unto man, he said, Behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom, and to depart from evil is understanding. And we can see that. I mean, we can see that in our nation. Uh, the 60s, the 60s was a, a major change in our nation and society. It's been changing ever since. And the moral foundation is simply eroded. And so when man does not have respect for what God has revealed, he doesn't have that fear, he doesn't have that awe, he doesn't have that reference, reverence anymore, that respect for what God has said, things deteriorate, things go to pieces. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. If, if man wants to understand how things work, well, I'm just thinking about the family and the disintegration of the family and the attitudes towards the family and all the society problems that it causes. Just, just yesterday I was speaking to the lifeguard at the wellness pool and she teaches, she teaches uh, special ed kindergarten children, actually I think three and four year olds and uh, they have a lot of behavior problems and she said, you know, a child will say, you know, like the mother says, your dad was a bad man, you know, no good. And, you know, to help the child process all this stuff and they act out, well, where does it come from? It comes from the disintegration of the family. Well, anyway. So the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and, and the knowledge of the holy is understanding. But then, the last three verses, and we won't discuss them right now, the last three verses talk about Jesus, our great high priest. And the next chapters through the middle of chapter 10 talk about Christ as our great high priest. That is the, that's the focus, that's what it, the instruction of and the book of Hebrews, our great high priest. So it starts, it, it talks about here in these three verses, but the chapter 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, and the first half of 10 all talk about Jesus, our great high priest. So we'll be looking at that plenty. Jesus, let us come boldly. Uh, I want to close with this poem. And perhaps you heard this song sometime. It was a little more popular maybe years ago. You are my all in all. And I like this song. You're my strength when I am weak. You're the treasure that I seek. You're my all in all. Seeking you as a precious jewel. Lord, to give up, I'd be a fool. You're my all in all. And then the chorus is, Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Taking my sin, my cross, my shame. Rising again, I bless your name. You're my all in all. When I am down, you pick me up. When I'm dry, you fill my cup. You're my all in all. Jesus, Lamb of God, worthy is your name. Is Jesus my all in all? Is Jesus truly my all in all? Let's kneel for prayer.